So to begin, I'm going to talk about the history of blood and blood transfusions briefly. And that's because, well, there's been a lot of stuff in that history. So there's a lot of events and some of them are fairly gruesome. Some of them are kind of funny. Um, but we all sort of take it for granted now that blood is pretty well understood, at least well enough understood to do things like observe it under a microscope, uh, transfuse safely, and so forth. But that wasn't always the case. And in fact, the majority of our understanding of blood happened within the last 40 or 50 years. So uh, deep understanding of blood is relatively recent. So let's dig into this. So way, 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 way back in about 1628, so that's a long time ago, an English physician, and I'm using physician here loosely because in 1628, uh, your barber was also your dentist and sometimes your doctor. So uh, that's about the level of complexity that they were operating at. No offense to English physician William Harvey, however, because he figured out that blood circulates in tubes. So obviously, if you stab someone or cut them, they're going to bleed, right? So we knew about blood and kind of how if you lose too much of it, you seem to die. But as far as what blood is doing inside of you and how it gets around and what its significance was, nobody really knew. So this discovery that it travels in tubes, kind of a big deal. So shortly after that, the earliest known blood transfusion is attempted. And I'm emphasizing the word attempted. Um, obviously, since blood typing was not a thing, I don't imagine the first blood transfusions went very well. And we'll get into that later as well. So a few years later in 1665, the first successful blood transfusion occurs and it occurred in England. So England has that claim to fame. Another physician, not William Harvey, uh, performed this particular transfusion, but this was not in people, it was in dogs. So he took blood from one dog or several other dogs and transfused that blood into a living dog, and he manages to keep a hemorrhaging dog alive using dog-to-dog -dog blood transfusion. So that was an experiment. It seemed to work, and that was pretty exciting for the time because that implied that you might be able to keep people alive who were bleeding by giving them somebody else's blood. Big deal at the time. Still is a big deal, actually. So then along uh, 18... 18 or so, so quite a, quite a few years later, a man named James Blundell performs the first successful human blood transfusion. And James Blundell was actually an obstetrician. Uh, and so he was using this blood specifically to treat postpartum hemorrhage in one of his patients who had just delivered a baby and who was dying of blood loss. And that was really, really common back at that time. So, um, childbirth and labor and delivery were extremely dangerous before modern medical intervention existed and death rates were much higher than they currently are. So we can all sort of feel grateful for a moment that we were born at the time that we were born because, you know, usually goes birth goes fine. Uh, there's plenty of humans on the earth as evidence of that, but sometimes it goes wrong and sometimes it goes horribly wrong. So this ability to treat postpartum people who are hemorrhaging with blood and keep them alive to raise their kids is awesome. It's a huge deal, very celebrated. 
A few years later in 1840, the first whole blood transfusion to treat hemophilia is completed. So hemophilia is a disorder where you cannot clot your own blood. If you start bleeding, you just don't stop. And it's very dangerous and very painful. So in 1840, the first whole blood transfusion, meaning you take blood out of somebody, don't do anything to it and just put it in another person, that's successfully completed. And then way later in 1900, finally, blood types are discovered, but only the first three. So there are many blood types and groups, and we'll talk about what that means. But the first three that were ever discovered were discovered in 1900 by Carl Lonsteiner, and these were the blood groups that you're probably most familiar with, type A, type B, and type O. And then a couple years later in 1902, Landsteiner's colleagues, Alfred Descatello and Adriano Sterli, discovered that you could also be a combo of A and B. So the discovery of type AB came later. Once the types were kind of figured out, people quickly discovered that you could figure out what someone's blood type was, and then you could cross match between donors and patients so that transfusions were safer. And it was at this time that the universality of the type O blood group is identified. Um, this is why blood type O is considered a universal donor. And we'll discuss the physiology of that as well. So in 1932, the first blood bank is established at Leningrad Hospital in what was at the time, well, in what is now Russia. And then in 1939 and 1940, the RH group is discovered. So this is the plus or the minus that you hear appended to the end of blood type. So it's a separate antigen or marker from the A, B, and O type, but they're usually reported together, which is why you hear people say things like A negative, B positive, et cetera, so forth. So blood banking and blood typing and blood collection kind of kicks into high gear soon after that. So in 1940, the U.S. government establishes a nationwide blood collection program. And if you think about what was going on around 1940, you can probably imagine why. So wartime is a time that blood collection kicks into high gear. And moving on, in 1961, platelets are kind of recognized to reduce mortality from hemorrhaging. So we started to discover what platelets were for, because before when you observe them under a microscope, they're just kind of little specks and nobody was super clear on what exactly the specks were doing. Now, in 1972, a technique was discovered called apheresis, where you can extract one component of the blood only and return the rest to the donor. And this is a huge deal because this allows you to, say, collect platelets from somebody's plasma, but give them back their plasma. Groundbreaking. And then fast forward to the 80s and 90s, most of what we understand about blood at present, so things about viral transmission in blood, what kinds of white blood cells there are and what exactly they do, lots of stuff about antibodies. Uh, all of that was really sort of pioneered by HIV and cancer research. And so of course the AIDS crisis was going on in the 80s and 90s. And so a lot of understanding and study about blood was happening at that time, born of the need to quickly identify and treat what this thing was that made everybody sick. 
And so that brings us more or less up to the present. We did have some, you know, little sort of iffy moments. For example, it took until 1990 for a test to identify whether or not hepatitis C was present in transfused blood. So that's fairly late in the game. And in fact, I know somebody who is now deceased, but I knew them who actually contracted hepatitis C from a blood transfusion. So these people still exist in our population. It's a leftover from before we figured out how to do that. So that is sort of the grand history of blood transfusions, typing, and how humankind learned about blood. I'm jumping back on really quick because I realized after I finished recording the blood episode that I forgot to include something cool and kind of gross. So um, in the history of humans figuring out blood, in about 1880 or so, um, Essentially, so humans had noticed that you can transfuse people, but it doesn't always work very well. So sometimes it seems to save their life. Sometimes they drop dead. Nobody really understands exactly why. Um, blood types would be discovered, at least the ABO groups would be discovered in 1900. But in 1880, uh, so still a little fuzzy. So around that time, it became popular for physicians to transfuse hemorrhaging people, often uh, new parents, people that are uh, have just given birth and are hemorrhaging, with milk from goats or cows as a blood substitute to keep them alive. Now, obviously, milk is not blood, and it has some very problematic components that can cause and did cause issues. But if you have somebody that's experiencing hypovolemic shock, meaning they have so little blood that what is what there is of their blood cannot circulate, pumping up their volume is a stopgap that can at least kind of help. And it did kind of help, but there was a lot of adverse reactions to the milk. And so that all went away when we started figuring out typing and transfusion. But there was a time when milk was used as a blood substitute for hemorrhaging people. And I thought that was super interesting and kind of gross. Um, also in early human blood transfusion experimentation, uh, there was attempts to transfuse sheep blood into people. And that also kind of worked um, because mammalian blood, you know, if you need erythrocytes, you got to get them somewhere and you can transfuse ones that are uh, close enough and hope for the best. So those were some early kind of icky and misguided attempts at transfusion that I forgot to include. So I'm just going to throw them in real quick and then you can get back to the regular episode. So next let's talk about what blood is. So as I established previously, it's important. It is in tubes inside of your body, goes in a big loop. And if you lose too much of it, you die. So that's the broad overview. But let's talk about the specifics, since that's literally what this podcast is for. So whole blood consists of about 55% plasma, and then 45% what we call formed elements, so cells of various kinds and platelets. So plasma itself is basically water plus stuff suspended in the water. And of the stuff that's non-cellular that's suspended in the water, there's a lot of proteins, many of them produced by your liver. So fibrinogen, for example, which is a clotting precursor protein that's abundant in the blood. 
but the most abundant blood protein is albumins. And these also contribute to the viscosity of blood. So the saying blood is thicker than water is literally scientifically true. And the major reason for that viscosity is albumins, which are a group of large proteins in the blood that have various functions. And what exactly their functions are aren't germane to this particular podcast, so I won't go into them. Also dissolved in the plasma are dissolved gases, electrolytes, both cations and anions, so your magnesiums, your sodiums, your potassiums, your chlorides, etc., so forth. And then a bunch of immunoglobulins, so antibodies, small proteins that are part of the immune system, uh, proteins that carry hormones around. There's also hormones in your plasma, all kinds of good stuff. So even though I'm not talking about the cellular components of blood right now, there's still a lot going on in the plasma. So I do want to point out that plasma is different from serum. And I say that because sometimes... If you're touring the internet trying to gain knowledge about anatomy and physiology, there's a lot out there and a lot of it's wrong because it hasn't been fact-checked. This is why you should be wary of like Chegg and Study Blue. They can be useful resources, but the proofreading leaves something to be desired. So just go with caution, guys. Um, So if you take plasma and you put it in a centrifuge tube and you spin the living crap out of it, You can get all of those proteins to precipitate out, and then what you pour off is serum. And serum is a light yellow watery fluid with dissolved gases and electrolytes, but no proteins. That's serum. Serum is useful because you can resuspend other blood components in serum and transfuse them accordingly. So let's say you want to get any potentially dangerous antibodies out of the plasma, but then you want to add back red blood cells. So you're only transfusing red blood cells and juice. You can do that. Serum is useful for it. So the formed elements are the packed sort of cell volume in the centrifuge tube after you pull the centrifuge tube out and look at it. So the overwhelming majority of the formed elements are red blood cells. You have billions and billions and billions of these And red blood cells are the reason that if you bleed out, you die. Red blood cells carry oxygen to our cells and tissues, and they carry away carbon dioxide. But the oxygen delivery thing is kind of the main idea. So um, our cells don't have the ability to store ATP. We have to make it on demand. And to do that, we use primarily oxidative phosphorylation and emphasis on oxidative. So that means that if your oxygen supply is interrupted, your ischemic tissues and cells, ischemic meaning not receiving blood and oxygen, quickly begin to die. And that happens to be painful. So that is why blood is so critical to have and have enough of. The less than 1% of blood, that is white blood cells, forms a layer between the plasma and the red blood cells that is called the Buffy coat, and this contains platelets and leukocytes. So platelets, again, are those little elements that are actually a tiny fragment of a cell, and they're responsible for parts of the clotting process. And then the rest of the leukocytes uh, are various immune cells. And I'm going to do a podcast that's more immune-specific later, Um, but if you want a more specified rundown of some immune components. I did make a podcast episode about 
some immune stuff and mRNA vaccines related to COVID. So if you're curious about that, you can go find that episode. So the word leukocyte means white cell. So leuk, L-E-U-K means white and ocyte means cell. Now of the leukocytes, there are several types and I will tell you them in the order from the most abundant to the least abundant. And fortunately, if you want to memorize this order, it's really, really easy. There's a mnemonic device and it goes like this, never let monkeys eat bananas. So never is the most abundant and bananas is the least abundant. So most abundant type of leukocyte in a healthy individual will be neutrophils. And these are cells that really like to eat bacteria. That's kind of their primary job. And they're going to do things like circulate in the blood to a place that's experiencing inflammation and then go check out what the inflammation is looking like and see if there's anything they need to eat. So let's say I get a splinter and some bacteria from my skin surface hitches a ride into my dermis on the splinter. What's going to happen is my neutrophils are going to show up by squeezing out of the bloodstream and into my connective tissue in a matter of seconds, probably, and go hunt down and kill and eat any bacteria that have accidentally gained access to my insides. So these are very powerful defensive cells, and they're very good at their job. Um, and they're also super abundant. So you've got a lot of them under normal circumstances kind of protecting you. So next in the acronym is LET and that is lymphocytes. So lymphocytes, as their names suggest, are part of the lymphatic system as well. And these come in two varieties, uh, well, asterisk, they come in two overall varieties, T cells and B cells. Now within T and B cells, there are many subcategories, but that is a topic for the immune system podcast, not for this one. So T and B cells, these are part of your uh, basically, how should I put this? The part of your immune system that can learn pathogens and remember. So they're part of your immune memory. And without going into too much detail, basically these are the cells that are going to encounter things that have made you sick, learn what they look like, and learn to recognize them in the future. And they do all kinds of cool things, all the way from killing and eating cancer and virally infected cells to releasing oodles of antibodies when a pathogen is encountered. So we'll go into more detail about that later. So never let monkeys, monocytes. Monocytes are the next most abundant after lymphocytes. And these are large cells um, and they are precursors to a kind of cell called a macrophage. So you can think of monocytes as kind of being baby macrophages. So monocytes are pretty big. They're about three to four times the size of an average erythrocyte. And what they do, if you see them in circulation in whole blood, it means they're on their way somewhere. So they're using blood as a road to get to a location. And at that location, they'll squeeze out and they'll go do stuff. So macrophages, uh, once they've become macrophages from monocytes, they do all kinds of things. Um, they're really good at eating debris. So for example, dead tissue or fragments of things, fragments of cells that have died. They'll also eat bacteria, pathogens. They'll eat uh, stuff that's covered in antibodies. So antibodies can tag things for destruction and macrophages can recognize that thing and consume it. 
and subject it to lysosomal degradation so it can't do you any harm. Macrophages are also responsible for something cool that, well, is relevant to me personally because I have a lot of tattoos. So if you look at a histological section of tattooed skin, you can see the ink in the dermis. That's where it's supposed to be. It has to be down in the dermis. Otherwise, you would just slough it off with your epidermis. And if you have tattoos or if you know people that are tattooed, what you'll know is that over time, the tattoo lines become less crisp. They fade and they get a little bit softer and more blurry. One of the reasons for that is that macrophages recognize that tattoo ink is not part of our normal body cells or even structures. They recognize the tattoo ink as being foreign. And so what they do is they grab it, eat it, and then they carry it away. Um, they're trying to carry it perhaps to the nearest lymph node so it can get checked out. So this gradual migration away from the primary tattoo site of little bits of ink is what causes that blurring. And this is why we need touch-ups. Interesting, right? Okay, so that's monkeys. The next one is EAT, and this stands for eosinophils. Um, these are really, really cool. They are these bright, red, chunky looking cells, and one of their primary jobs is to watch out for and eat parasites. They also have a role in allergies and inflammation, including seasonal allergies. So if you have bad seasonal allergies, eosinophils are not your friend. Um, but they're specialists for particular kinds of things, including but not limited to pollen and parasites. And then finally, bananas. That's basophils. These are extremely rare. They're 1% or less of all white blood cells. And remember, white blood cells are 1% or less of all blood in general. So 1% of 1%, very, very small. These are very, very dark cells. They're not very abundant in the blood, or they shouldn't be anyway. And they have chunky, dark, violet, blackish granules in their cytoplasm that are uh, inclusions made of histamine and heparin. So these are histamine and heparin that can be secreted by the basophil as needed. So histamine is a vasodilator. So it's going to open up small blood vessels and capillaries, making them wider. And heparin is a blood thinner. Um, and actually we use heparin medically to thin the blood and do things like try to dissolve clots, et cetera. So the point of histamine and heparin in that context, in the immune context is to make it easier for white blood cells to access areas they need to access. So if you make the road wider using histamine and you make the blood less sludgy using heparin, you can speed the arrival of other immune cells to a particular location. So that's our leukocytes. And finally, let's describe erythrocytes, white blood cells, or excuse me, red blood cells. I was closing out white blood cells. I was still thinking about them. So Erith means red, ocyte means cell. Erythrocytes are interesting. You were probably taught that all cells have a nucleus if they're eukaryotic animal cells, and that's not quite true. So in humans, we have red blood cells, lots of them, and they don't have a nucleus. They used to. So when red blood cells are forming, they have a nucleus at first, but once they're done with the nuclear phase, once they've synthesized all the proteins they need to synthesize, they spit their nucleus out. They degrade it. So 
if you look at a blood smear of red blood cells, what you'll see is that it's a little red thingy and there's no nucleus to be had, none at all. So for this reason, we have to constantly make red blood cells because a cell with no nucleus cannot do any maintenance on itself. It has a limited shelf life. So red blood cells are around for about 120 days. So they're born, they circulate for a while, and then they go to the spleen or the liver to die and be recycled. So this is why it's possible to get anemia, which is either a pro problem with not making enough red blood cells or a problem with not making enough hemoglobin to fill them up. Speaking of hemoglobin, hemoglobin is just absolutely super abundant inside of erythrocytes. So erythrocytes are jam-packed with this globular tetrameric protein. Let me just, let me define that word for you. So mer, the suffix M-E-R, means piece or part, and tetra means four. So when I say tetramer, I'm saying that this protein has four separate parts that come together like Voltron to form a bigger part. Sorry if that reference is lost on you, look it up. Um, so hemoglobin is tetrameric. It's got two alpha and two beta chains. And at the center of each of those globin chains, which remember is just a basically a wadded up rope of amino acids, there's this little thingy called a heme group. And a heme group, the molecular structure is actually really pretty. I recommend Googling it and having a gander. It's sort of a petal or flower shaped pigment molecule with an Fe2 plus at its center. So that's an atom of iron with a positive charge of two. And this iron is what is capable of grabbing onto the oxygen and carrying it around. And this is also why blood smells and tastes metallic because it's literally got iron atoms in it. Speaking of which, here's a connection we can make between blood and other stuff that might be more familiar. We all know what rust looks and smells like. Rust is reddish, it smells rusty. Rust is oxidized iron, iron that has essentially lost an electron due to the corrosive power of oxygen. Guess what? When you glue an oxygen to the iron atom, it becomes oxidized in your hemoglobin and that is what blood has in common with rust. So if you're thinking that they smell the same, you would be correct, and that's for a very specific reason. They are the same in a lot of respects. So our red blood cells use this molecule, hemoglobin, to carry around oxygen. So there is sometimes a misconception that hemoglobin is present floating around in the plasma, and that is absolutely not true. That is very dangerous, in fact. So hemoglobin is a pretty big, chunky molecule, and if it ends up in your plasma in high concentrations, it can block tiny blood vessels, capillaries, and your renal tubule and cause kidney failure and tissue damage. It's not good. So it's a very important molecule, but it's only supposed to be contained within your red blood cells. So hemolysis, the bursting of red blood cells, this is to be avoided. Hemoglobin is great if it's inside of a cell. So most of what's inside red blood cells is hemoglobin. There are some other stuff, but hemoglobin is kind of the main attraction. So in the next segment, what I'm gonna do is describe the surface anatomy of red blood cells. And that will bring us to talking about typing. So 
on the surface of our red blood cells, there is a complex coating of proteins, lipids, and sugars called the glycocalyx. Now, our cells in general each have their own unique glycocalyx, but the one on red blood cells has some additional specifications. So that's why we're talking about it. So the glycocalyx of red blood cells serves a bunch of purposes, but one of the purposes is to identify the red blood cells as being our red blood cells so that the immune system can say, oh, hey, that belongs to us. I don't need to attack it or worry about it. It's, it's ours, right? So including, included in that glycocalyx are the A, B, and O blood groups. So let's start there. And I want to specify O means lack of either A and B. It's not its own type. So many students are wondering, okay, so you're telling me it's a surface antigen, and that's an important word. Antigen is the name for a thing on the surface of a cell that identifies it as either foreign or self. So we've got A, B, and O. Those are our designations. The antigens, which is the physical molecule that hangs off of the red blood cell, are combinations of different sugars and protein or proteinaceous related structures. So the base antigen, which we build on to make other ones, is a short little molecule that starts with a galactose, and then there's an N-acetylglucosamine attached to that, and then another galactose, and then at a right angle off of that galactose is a fucose. So if you have an antigen that looks like this on the surface of your red blood cell, but you don't have anything else, then you're type O. The A antigen has all of the same stuff, so galactose and acetylglucosamine, another galactose, and then fucose, but at the end of the last galactose, it also has an N-acetylgalactosamine, so an additional portion. And then if you have B, again, it's the same, so galactose, N-acetylglucosamine, another galactose, at a right angle, there's a fucose, but on the very end, hanging off the last galactose, there's another galactose, so that's type B. So on the surface of your red, your red blood cells, if you only have the H antigen, which is just the base part, then you're type O. If you have the A antigen, you have what I described, so the last molecule that's sticking off the cell furthest away from it is gonna be an N-acetylgalactosamine, and if you have the B antigen, the last outermost molecule is going to be a galactose. Or if you have AB, you have both the entire A antigen and the entire B antigen. So uh, I would recommend if you're having a hard time visualizing this, go look up the molecular structure of the ABO blood group glycoproteins. So glyco means sugar and protein means protein. And there's some very nice tidy diagrams that you can look at that just show you the difference. So 
on the surface of our red blood cells, we've got these antigens, some combination of them. We have the opposite set of antibodies in our plasma. So I just described antigens, which are physical name tags with specific molecular structure that hang off of your red blood cells. Correspondingly, suspended in the plasma, there are antibodies, which are small proteins that are designed to stick to and stick together whatever blood isn't yours. So let's say I'm type A. I'm going to have anti-B antibodies in my plasma, meaning that if for, for some reason or somehow a B blood cell with a type B surface antigen ends up in me, the antibodies in my plasma are going to attack and stick to that B blood cell because it's not the kind I have because I'm A. So this confuses students because it's just not intuitive for most people. So it's something that for most folks, you're going to have to practice with a little bit in order to gain mastery. And that's just fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Just, you know, as you're learning, be kind to yourself if you make a mistake, because getting it right just takes a little bit of extra elbow grease for most people's brains. It's just not how most people's brains work. So that's me telling you, uh, I told you to be nice to yourself about learning, so you have to do it because I'm the professor here. So there. So let's just run through the examples list just to reinforce this idea. So if I'm type A, I have anti-B antibodies in my plasma. If I'm type B, I have anti-A antibodies in my plasma. If I'm type O, I have both anti-A and anti-B antibodies in my plasma. And if I'm type AB, I don't have either type A or type B antibodies in my plasma because if I did, I would be attacking my own blood and I'd die. That would suck. So when you're thinking about transfusion compatibility, what you're thinking about is whether or not the patient's plasma antibodies will attack the donated blood. And if you're thinking to yourself, yeah, but Professor Howard, donated blood has its own antibodies. Wouldn't those attack the recipient's blood? That's a great question. Here's the deal. Thing nobody tells you. When you receive a blood transfusion, you're receiving red blood cells that are suspended in an immunologically neutral serum. So you're not getting the donor's uh, antibodies most of the time. It's very rare that you would choose to transfuse whole, unadulterated, unchanged blood from one person to another because that's pretty dangerous and risky. You'd only do that if you know you didn't have any other avenues of treatment available. So when you go to the Red Cross or whatever and donate blood, they're taking your red blood cells and they are separating your red blood cells from all of the components of your plasma so that your plasma can't attack the cells of the person that's going to end up receiving your donated blood. So from a student perspective, if you're trying to puzzle out questions about blood typing, etc., um, what you're going to want to do is only think about the patient's plasma and whether or not it will be attacking the donor blood cells and not the other way around. So instead of going through the whole universal donor, universal recipient thing, because that's boring and basically just me reading you a list, I'm going to let you guys do that on your own. But it's important to be able to logically puzzle out the likelihood of a transfusion reaction. 
Um, many students will do this learning behavior where when they want to work on memorizing a concept like this, they'll look at a table that shows you who can transfuse whom and try and memorize that table. And memorizing a table is not going to help you do applied problem solving. So as an example, I'm going to walk you through a story problem and we're going to discuss how to solve that story problem. So let's imagine that you are an emergency department doctor and it's a busy night in the ER. There's lots of people. It's really loud. There's lots of problems, many things demanding your attention. And you have a patient that is bleeding and needs a blood transfusion. They're not conscious, so you don't know their blood type. You don't even know who they are. They came in from an accident with no identification. Your job is just to make sure they don't die, right? So you're busy with something else, and you know that your nurse is more than competent enough to type this person's blood. And because they're bleeding, it's abundant. There's plenty around for a sample. So you ask the nurse, hey, can you go type this blood really fast? And then well, we'll initiate transfusion proceedings because I'm, you know, splinting a leg or something over here. So your nurse goes away and then comes back in a little bit, a little while later and says, okay, the patient has type B surface antigens on their red blood cells. And you're like, all right, roger that. So you received one piece of information. Patient's got type B surface antigens. So the question now is you need to figure out what's in their plasma so that their plasma doesn't attack the donor cells. So if I asked you, okay, given that information, what antibodies are in their plasma, you would think about it and say, okay, well, if they're type B surface antigens on the surface of their red blood cells, then they're going to have anti-A antibodies circulating in their plasma. And so that means that if I transfuse them with anything including A, so either A blood or AB blood, I will kill my patient. So anything with A is out. I can safely transfuse them with B or O, but we're missing a piece of information. So this brings me around to the RH factor. So the RH factor is simpler than the ABO groups. RH positive means you have the RH glycoprotein. RH negative means you do not have it. So plus means yes, minus means no. So if my nurse told me that the patient only had type B surface antigens, that means that they're B negative because that nurse did not tell me that they had RH surface antigens. So now that I've narrowed down that my patient can't receive anything with A, I also have to consider their RH factor. And since no RH surface antigens were observed, that means that I have to give my patient B negative or O negative blood. This is the only avenue of transfusion for me that is safe to do with this patient. So then I transfuse accordingly. So because of the way the antibody antigen system works, you can logically figure out a bunch of stuff just from one piece of information, like I just demonstrated. So that's the kind of skill you're going to want to practice. Now, before we wrap this up, I do want to make a point about the RH factor. So I mentioned earlier in the history segment that it was discovered later than the ABO group, and that's true. 
The RH factor is named RH because it was discovered in rhesus macaques, which is a type of monkey. Um, but of course, you know, evolutionarily, we are extremely closely related to monkeys. So uh, it just got named after the monkey, but we have the same one. It doesn't look any different in us than it does in simians. So with the ABO group, the antibodies against the opposite blood type are present at birth. So if I'm type B, like my imaginary patient just was, my anti-A antibodies are around when I'm born. Where exactly these antibodies come from isn't clear. Um, it's actually a little bit of a mystery. So there's some competing theories. One is that environmental antigens resemble the glycoproteins on blood cells enough to generate an immune response to make antibodies. The reason this is puzzling is because if you have antibodies, that means you have to have cells producing them that remember a pathogen. But when you're born, you've never been exposed to the wrong blood before. So the question is, well, how do they get there? And the answer is, science isn't exactly sure yet. So that's interesting. It's not often in this class we run into a scientific black box, so to speak, but this is one of them. It's a fuzzy area. So if you're A, you're born with anti-B. If you're B, you're born with anti-A. Where do they come from? Not totally sure, but they're present at birth. The same is not true of the Rh factor. So if you are Rh negative, you need to be exposed to Rh positive blood at least one time in order to become sensitized to it. So let's go back to my example with my patient where they have type B surface, surface antigens and no RH factor surface antigens. So that means they're B negative. I, as the clinician there, for safety purposes, I would assume that they had been exposed to RH positive blood and had therefore been sensitized against the RH factor. So I'm going to assume that they have anti-RH antibodies circulating in their plasma because that's the safe thing to do. But I don't actually know that for sure. So it's totally possible for someone who is RH negative but has never been exposed to RH positive blood before to safely receive a first RH positive transfusion, but not any after that, because that first transfusion event exposes their immune system to the RH factor and begins to sensitize the immune system against the RH factor. So I'll close this episode by talking about hemolytic disease of the newborn, which is a condition in which an RH positive mother is carrying an RH negative fetus, or excuse me, it's the other way around. Okay, I'm back. Sorry, there was a sudden notification on my computer that distracted me and made me misspeak about the RH factor. Um, so. I'm back. I have silenced my annoying email notifications and let's return to hemolytic disease of the newborn. So let's talk about RH incompatibility. If a woman or a person with a uterus and ovaries, depending on how they identify, is pregnant and the person carrying the pregnancy is RH negative and their fetus is RH positive, this creates the possibility that the person who is pregnant can be sensitized against the infant's RH positive blood at delivery. So the placenta puts mother's blood and infant's blood in very close proximity so that oxygen and nutrients can be exchanged. 
And at birth, which is messy and bloody, the placenta begins to rip off of the wall of the uterus during delivery, and that allows for the RH positive blood of the fetus, now neonate because it's out, to mingle with the RH negative pregnant person's blood. And that creates a sensitization event, which can sensitize that person against RH positive blood. So in this case, the first pregnancy typically happens without issue because the RH negative pregnant person has not yet been exposed to RH positive blood. But if that person gets pregnant again, and once again, the RH positive, uh, the, the fetus is RH positive, antibodies can actually cross the placenta. So whole cells can't cross the placenta um, during the course of the pregnancy, there's a barrier, but antibodies are little enough that they can pass into the baby's bloodstream and begin to attack the baby's RH positive red blood cells. And this causes what I referred to earlier as hemolysis, where red blood cells burst, releasing their hemoglobin into the plasma and blocking small blood vessels and causing ischemia and renal failure. Obviously very dangerous for a newborn, right? So we don't want this to happen. So to combat this, there is a drug called Rogam, which is derived from human blood donation. And essentially what Rogam does is goes and binds up those antibodies so that the antibodies can't attack the baby's blood. So this is only, and it is specific to a case where an RH negative person is carrying an RH positive fetus. If an RH positive person is carrying an RH negative fetus, same problem doesn't exist. And that's due to the specific and unidirectional sensitization of the RH factor. So if you're negative, you can't get positive, not vice versa. So I hope that makes sense. Um, if you're having a hard time making sense of all of that verbally without something to look at, I totally understand. Um, I recommend watching my videos on it on YouTube or at least looking at a picture in your textbook or on the internet about it. Excuse me. Um, but in closing, if you're in need of a little pick-me-up, there's a really cute picture of a man, and behind that man are a bunch of really happy-looking people holding babies, and all of those babies are RH-positive infants that were carried by RH-negative mothers, and they were saved by the rogam from that guy's blood. So there's this Australian guy who happens to have the blood component necessary for rogam, and he's been donating his blood for ages and ages and ages, specifically so that it can be made into rogam to protect Rh-positive babies. I believe he is retired from doing that now. Um, but it's, you know, it's heartwarming. And in a world where there's a lot of bad stuff happening, it's nice to be able to look at something that makes you smile. And an old man who donates his blood to save babies is pretty good news, I would argue. So uh, if you need to pick me up, go check that out. Okay, so that concludes this episode of Blood Part 1. The next episode, I'm going to talk about hemostasis and clotting. And we're actually going to get into a little bit of a uh, quite dramatic European medical history as well. So you can look forward to that. Uh, it's got hemophilia, it's got monks, it's got murder, it's got all the things. So if you're 
in for a rollicking good time with some hemophilia, some genealogy, and some uh, foul play, that will be the episode for you. So hopefully my audio quality was better this time around. I guess I'll find out now. Um, And I thank you for your attention as always. I'll see you in the next episode.